Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. God used bad stuff to create good things. You bet he does. He does it all the time. So in your life, I need you to be confident that God is in it because it, like David, will allow you to walk away from a detour in your life that you may think is devastating and say, I know God's involved. I know God has a part in this. God works all things together for good? Well, these words from Romans 8, verse 28 remind us that God is constantly at work in our lives. But that doesn't mean we won't go through difficult times. Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is talking about detours and how easily we can become discouraged by them, unless we can keep the bigger picture in mind. God works all things together for good. Well, here's Pastor Mike with When Life Takes an Unwanted Turn. have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them up to 2 Samuel chapter 12. As we dive back into what's going on in Dave's life, he's certainly in the midst of some tough times. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Like most of us, I'm sure Dave didn't appreciate much detours. By that, I mean the things in his life that he didn't expect, things that he didn't plan, and things, frankly, that he didn't want. And neither do I. As a matter of fact, if I were to look back in my life, let's say if I back the clock up to the point when I became a follower of Christ and I look forward, if I were to anticipate how my Christian life would unfold and how things might happen, there's a lot of things that have happened in my Christian life that I didn't expect, things I didn't plan and things I didn't want. They are detours, if you will, left turns when I thought the road would go straight, right turns when I thought it would go left, things that just were not part of what I would anticipate as the straightforward laid out plan for my life. David's life was filled with things like that. Samuel came to him and said, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And I suppose the natural thought would be, okay, then I should see a progressive series of steps that lead to the throne of Israel. And yet, you know the story. If you've been with us, David's been scattered all over the place for over a decade on the pathway to the throne. It wasn't a straight shot at all. God's plan in David's life took him in a variety of directions that he didn't anticipate. Then he becomes the king. And you might remember, everything seems to be going pretty well. He establishes himself in the kingdom. Things go even better when God promises him that he's going to do great things with David. He begins to expand the borders of Israel and fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. And then all of a sudden, we see him in chapter 11 walking around on the roof of his palace when he shouldn't have been out at battle. He sees an attractive woman. He ends up having sex with her. He ends up trying to cover up his sexual encounter because she had become pregnant by killing this lady's husband, and he finds himself in a heap of trouble. This, I suppose, is another kind, another sort of detour in his life that he didn't anticipate or expect. Now we're going to dive into the middle of this chapter, and it comes on the heels of something we've studied some time ago, but I hope you recall that Nathan showed up in David's life and said, hey, Dave, you've got a problem. You're running from God. You've sinned. You're covering it up. You need to fess up, and you need to face it, and you need to come clean. And David gets word from Nathan that he is caught, basically, that God knows, that Nathan knows, that he needs to confess his sin, and he does. 
And Nathan says, well, God will forgive you, but there's going to be some consequences. Your life's going to take a bit of a left turn here. As a matter of fact, it's going to take a major left turn, something that's going to rock your world. It's going to turn your emotions upside down. And it's something that I'm sure you never hoped for, anticipated, or planned for. And it's certainly not something you want. And David finds himself in a position in his life that often we find ourselves in. Those of you that are single parents probably never planned to be single parents. Those of you that have a divorce on your resume probably never expected to have a divorce on your resume. Those of you that are suffering with some kind of chronic illness, you didn't plan that earlier in your life as part of what you had anticipated. If you're out of a job, that probably wasn't on the schedule for you. There are a lot of things that go on in our lives that just aren't planned. Some of them are as tragic as what's going to happen in this passage, the death of a child. No one plans that. And it was about to turn David's world upside down. But there's some interesting things in this passage that I want us to come away with this morning. Things that I hope, as we look forward to our future and end up experiencing things we don't anticipate, that we would cling to simple truths. Truths I want to point out for you, beginning in verse number 15. The text says, after David had gone home, and of course this comes on the heels of a great confrontation and a revelation that God would punish David's sin by killing the child, if you can imagine. And it says, Yahweh then struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and the child became ill. David, of course, as any parent would, a newborn infant is sick, deathly sick. David pleads with God, and he prays for this child, and he fasts, and he goes into his house, and he spends the night lying on the ground. And the elders of the household were quite concerned, and they stood beside David and tried to get him up from the ground, but he refused and couldn't even get David to eat. He wouldn't eat any food. And on the seventh day after this revelation from Nathan, and after seven days of illness, the child dies. David's servants were afraid to tell him that. Uh, David was spending time before God in another room, and they thought if we tell him that, he's perhaps going to do something desperate. They said while the child was still living, we spoke to David. He wouldn't listen to us. How can we tell him the child's dead? He, he may do something desperate. David noticed his servants over in the corner there whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he, he's dead. Verse 20 says, David did something quite unusual. He got up from the ground, he had washed and put on lotions and changed his clothes, and then he went into the house of the Lord and he worshipped. Then he went to his own house. And at his request, they served him food and he ate. And his servants asked him, why, why are you acting like this? While the child was alive, you, you fasted and wept, and that's the kind of thing that goes on in the midst of mourning, a loss or a death. And Now, though, the child's dead, and you're getting up and you're eating, you're acting like uh, just moving on with life here, back to normal. We don't get it. And David explained. David answers, while the child was alive, I, I fasted and I wept, and I thought, who knows? Perhaps Yahweh will be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, now that my life has taken this major left turn, now that there's this incredible loss and this hole in my heart emotionally, well, why should I fast? I can't bring him back. No, I, I'm going to die. I'll go to him, and he's not going to come back from the dead. He's not going to return to me. So it's pretty much something I can't do much about. Now, the interesting thing about this description of what happens in David's life to me is that there's so much discussion in David's explanation about God. I mean, that may not seem like a big observation to you, but it's interesting that he says, as he explains himself to his servants, 
You know, I pleaded with God about this. But now that God has taken the child, I realize that this was the fulfillment of this prophecy, and then it's something I can't do anything about. As a matter of fact, when the child dies, he goes and he goes to worship. He decides to, to praise God, to worship God, to spend time in, in church, if you will. Now, this kind of resolve, this kind of acceptance of reality, I think can only happen in someone's mind when they connect the detour of their life, when they can connect the suffering or the problem or the trial or the change in status or the change in job or the change in relationship as something that God has well under control. And that is hard for us. And it will raise a myriad of philosophical and theological questions. But I'd like you to jot it down because I think it's critical for our sanity if we're ever going to figure out what this Christianity thing is all about. We must be, no matter where our life goes, confident. Now, this will be an odd statement for us to really digest. But jot it down and then we'll try and grapple with it a little bit. We must be confident that God is in it. We've got to be confident that God is in it. And by that, I mean in the detours of life. That God is actually planning, sovereignly overseeing that his purpose and his intent in my life is not something out of control. It's something right exactly in control. Now, that'll stretch our thoughts about God. That'll stretch our faith in a sovereign God, particularly when the thing in my life is something that results from a bad decision. Something that results from something stupid that I've done. Something that is a result of sin. Hard for me to say, God, you planned this for me. When I look at the reality of the detour and I see that it's something that I've done that's wrong. Are you saying that God's involved in the wrong in my life? Well, yes, in a very real sense, I am saying that. God is a God who in his sovereignty looks at your life and even through the mistakes and the sinful decisions that you make, and you may have to suffer the consequences of some of them, he is looking at your life as this particular masterpiece that he's working out and he says, I am involved in those things. Oh, he's not directly responsible for the sinful decisions that you make, but he is definitely involved. Let me prove it to you. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 should be the definitive, emphatic end of the discussion. Though for many of us, it just simply raises more questions. But I hope at least that we can focus on the truth and begin to allow our conscience to be more comfortable with the tension that exists between my freedom and my decisions and my will and God's overarching sovereignty. And it is a tough tension, I understand. But note it with me in verse... 28 of Romans chapter 8, a verse you're familiar with, I trust. And I want you to circle a couple of words that are very important here. It says, and we know that in most things, God works for the good. Circle the word most there, would you? <laughs> Underscore it carefully. Highlight it for me. You're going to have a problem with that, aren't you? You may have one of those translations that they actually stuck this word in there. All. You see that? I put that in there because... That's a good translation of what's really there. The Bible says that in all things, all things, in all things, God works for the good. That denotes a plan. That suggests some kind of strategy. That suggests sovereignty. Here's the qualifying phrases. See if you apply. See if this is true of your life, of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. 
You want to debate non-Christians in the world and society? Fine. We can debate that later. But you want to talk about Christians and Christians' lives? Then you can't much argue with that verse. It seems to be definitive and clear. You meet the qualification. You love God, called according to his purpose, part of his family. Well, then the Bible says that in all things, God has got a plan. And he's working it out for something that is good. The death of a child? No. Yes. I mean, that has got to be the, the most difficult thing to grapple with. I recognize that. But I think David is displaying something. Not anger, not frustration, not bitterness, not pounding his fist against the, the, the side of his, his door frame saying, I've missed God's plan. He's just recognizing this is all a part of it. Oh, it may be in the wake of my sin, but I realize that God is doing what God is doing. And ultimately, as we look at it from a New Testament perspective, there's absolutely no question God is working his plan out. Is he responsible for my sinful decisions? I didn't say that. He's not directly responsible for our sinful decisions. But in our lives, if I find myself single, if I find myself unemployed, if I find myself with, a, with some kind of a physical handicap, if I find myself with some kind of financial collapse, I recognize God is working it all out. It may be hard for me to connect the dots, but God has got a plan in this. Reminds me of those old uh, 3D pictures. I say old because it's been a few years since I've seen them, but they used to be popular about five or six years ago. There were these computer-generated pictures that looked like just a mess of lines and dots and colors. Do you remember those? I'd be at the mall or the swap meet. They'd be out there, and there would be this picture, and these guys would be selling them, and they would tell you there's a real image in there, but you just got to blur your eyes a little bit. you remember that? Blur your eyes, cross your eyes, you know, put your finger in your nose, whatever they tell you to do. Do something that will make this thing come into view. Now, some of you, you have to admit it, at least with a head nod here this morning, you looked at those and never saw anything, right? You looked at them, you said, there's nothing really there. You thought it was, you know, the emperor's new clothes kind of thing. Everybody's pretending to see something, but there's nothing really there. But some of us were stubborn enough to stand there and say, if there's something in there, we're going to see it. And we kept working at it, crossing our eyes, standing on one foot. Whatever they told you to do, we did until finally, amazingly, those of us that have seen it, it comes into view. And there's this crisp, sharp image that just jumps off that page. I see it. Now, those of you that never saw it, <laughs> to you I understand it was just a mess of colors and, and lines and dots. And to you it was incomprehensible. It didn't look like it made any sense. But I hope you recognize, even if to you it was incomprehensible, there's enough of us, I hope that you trust in our testimony about those pictures that that picture was not incoherent. It did make sense. And though you never saw it as comprehensible, you had to stand back and say, some others see it as comprehensible, therefore it is coherent. And that's a good distinction to make this morning. The difference between being incomprehensible to you and being incoherent. It's kind of like algebra, okay? <laughs> to most of us, it's incomprehensible. We don't get it. The professor stands up in his chalkboard and he draws all these letters and lines and numbers and, and all of that stuff's on the board and we don't get it. But we recognize that though we don't get it, it's because we didn't study hard enough. There are some people in class that get it. And it isn't incoherent. It's very coherent. It's just we're not on the right level yet to comprehend it. It's true of many things in life. And perhaps it's true of your life right now. And you're saying, I don't get it. I can't see a plan in this. It doesn't look good to me. 
It, it looks like a mess. Why would God do this to me? Why would he take this from me? Why would I be unemployed? Why would this happen to me? And you may be standing looking at that picture saying, I just don't see it. Well, don't make the leap of saying, if I don't comprehend it, then it must be incoherent. It must not make any sense. The Bible says right here, it makes sense. That's what it says. He's working it all out. That little blotch of, of colors and that mess in that corner, that's really part of the picture? And that really is part of a good picture? No way. Yes way. <laughs> it is. Because God said it is. And that little thing in your life that you think, God ah, can't use this. God says, I can. It's painful to you, but, but it's part of the plan. It's part of my overall sovereign plan in your life. Even the bad stuff, even the bad stuff. God used bad stuff to create good things? You bet he does. He does it all the time. So in your life, I need you to be confident that God is in it. Because it, like David, will allow you to walk away from a detour in your life that you may think is devastating and say, I know God's involved. I know God has a part in this. I don't understand it. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem to fit. But in some way, this little chapter of my life, or this big chapter of my life, it fits into God's plan. It's what God's called me for. And I know God's in it. How do I know? Because I love him and I've been called according to his purpose. If you qualify for that verse, this is a truth we have to grapple with. And you have to be confident in it. Was David? I think he was. There's a problem, though, that we have. If you'll turn back to 2 Samuel 12. Even when we recognize that God has a plan in the detour that I find myself in. That though I never planned to be a single parent, I am one and... God must have a plan in that for me. That ultimately will work out for some good, some glory, some right. But it's hard to see. Even when we begin to see it, there are some doubts that creep in. Because we look at other people and we say their life is better than mine. They didn't have to take this detour. My life's more messed up than theirs. So, God, maybe you just don't like me as much as you like them. Maybe because my detour is based on my own sin, and maybe because my life is messed up in this area because I've done wrong, maybe you just don't quite care as much about me now because I'm damaged goods. I'm kind of second rate because I know there are other Christians that don't have this detour. Look what happens next in 2 Samuel 12. It's quite remarkable, actually. David goes to comfort his wife Bathsheba. He went to her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. Now that is an amazing verse, because we know who Solomon is, and he ain't no normal guy. He's going to be the next king. He is going to write part of scripture. He is going to rule over the most materially wealthy and prosperous and peaceful kingdom Israel has ever seen. He is going to, to be the wisest man that ever lived. He is going to be the recipient of God's blessing. And he came from Bathsheba, the next door neighbor's wife, after you killed her husband. You're going to bless that relationship? You're kidding me, aren't you, God? No, I'm not kidding you. That's why those last four words are there. Verse 24, the Lord loved him. <laughs> the Lord loved him. Isn't that funny? The Lord loved him. It wasn't that he said, well, that's a cute baby. I like that one. The God didn't do that. That's a, that's a statement of God's choice to bless David and his blunder. <laughs> I 
No, he doesn't do that without repentance. That's why the first part of chapter 12 is important. We must repent and confess and say, God, we've blown it. But when we do, he looks at the mess, the detour, this second marriage, this messed up career now, this this unhealthy body that my sin has created. And he says, you ready to go from there? I can work with you. And you know what? I love you. Now, that's not just a statement of affection. That's not just saying, hey, I, I still like you. That's saying, I will put my favor on your messed up life. This little area, this big detour, this thing, I can bless it. You just have to confess and be ready to move on. And I'll, I'll work with you there. We've talked about it before, but it may look like plan B in your life. But God can move that into plan A. And it's hard for us to believe, but we have the advantage of the knowledge of knowing that this kid is going to grow up to be something. And this kid comes from a relationship that you and I, in our back of our own minds, if we'd lived through this, we'd say, God, never bless this relationship. Matter of fact, I'd feel guilty. I'd have this sense of continuing guilt. I'd look at this wife and I'd say, I've killed your husband. We met in this adulterous relationship. God, never going to work with us. Never going to work with our kids, that's for sure. And God says, I love that kid. And as a matter of fact, I want to affirm that to you. Look at verse 25. And because Yahweh loved that kid, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name the kid Jedediah. Jedediah means loved by Yahweh. <laughs> I want you to change the kid's name. Change it to God loves me. <laughs> Think about that. Now, that was not just a statement, like I said, about his you know, neat affection or preference for this kid. This was God saying, I will bless this. And that had to be earth-shaking. Because you and I, in situations like this, have a tendency to doubt if God can use us. We sometimes have a tendency to doubt if God even still loves us. And the Bible says right here, you bet. Even when we sin, even when we sin. Jot this down, number two on your outline. You and I, in the midst of our detours, when our life takes a left, when we think it ought to be going right, Never doubt God's love. It is so different than anything you've ever experienced. Never doubt God's love. You're listening to Focal Point and a message from pastor, author, and Bible teacher Mike Fabares called When Life Takes an Unwanted Turn. For more teaching on this important subject or to share this message with a friend who could use encouragement, visit focalpointradio.org. You can also download the free Focal Point mobile app for convenient listening on the go. If you've ever experienced one of life's detours, then you know how easy it is to find yourself vulnerable to doubt fear, worry, and even depression. We ask, does God care? Has he forgotten me? Well, Pastor Mike has written a helpful book on this topic and looks to the truths found in Scripture for answers to these questions and many more. Along the way, he shares how complete trust in God alone can restore your confidence and hope, and how God promises to love and protect you no matter what happens. When you make a donation to support Focal Point today, we'll send you a copy of Pastor Mike's book as our way of saying thanks. It's titled, Lifelines for Tough Times. Just call 888-320-5885. You can also give online at focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. And remember to ask for the book, Lifelines for Tough Times, when you get in touch. 
You might also consider joining the team of supporters called Focal Point Partners. As a partner, your monthly contribution plays a crucial role in helping us plan for the future, and we're so grateful for your faithful and consistent support. So sign up today when you call 888-320-5885 or when you go online to focalpointradio.org. You know, we work hard to make Pastor Mike's teaching available for you in as many formats as we can, but none of it is possible without the generous donations from our listeners. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again Thursday as we continue learning what to do when life takes an unwanted turn, right here on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, it's an honor to be with you every day, helping you explore the depths of Scripture. But I want to be clear, no amount of Bible knowledge is ever going to save you. Be sure where you stand with God. Get in touch with us. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Visit us today at focalpointradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.